by scholars to have been based upon an oral tradition which was given to Mark by Peter himself. And therefore, it is of a special interest to us to see some of the emotions that are reflected in his account of what takes place in the denial of Peter. Let me begin reading first from verse 24 of chapter two, two, 22 of the Gospel of Luke. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them are given the title benefactor. But you are not to be like that. The greatest among you shall be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And then in the gospel according to Mark at verse 66 of the 14th chapter. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't understand what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them, and again he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept bitterly. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. I'm going to repeat a sermon today because it has meant a great deal to me it's one of those that has to do with a person that I can identify with very readily, and I'm sure that a great many of you can too. His name is Peter. 
He had his name changed from Simeon to Cephas, which in Arabic is a stone, or to Petros, uh, which is the Latin and the Greek for rock. Peter the Rock. We hear an ad for the Prudential Life Insurance Company that exhorts us to own the piece of the rock. But each of us have a piece of the rock in us. If we belong to Jesus Christ and we can identify with this very lovable and remarkable person called Peter. We can all find ourselves caught up in him because there moves in him so much of the same emotions that stir in us. We are tempted to think that the gospel is something that just happened a long time ago and that it really doesn't have all that much relevance for those of us who are sitting in Gaither Chapel today and who have to walk out of the church in a little while and go back to our duties and our responsibilities to our families, to our tasks here at school. But the remarkable thing about God is that God is eternal. His Son, Jesus Christ, is eternal. And what God speaks has nothing to do with time, and it is not altered by time, but it continues to speak to us. I had this brought home to me a long time ago when I was in the library at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland seeking to study and looking at all of the dry as dust theological books about me and wondering how they could speak to the deep needs of my heart came across a study of the timelessness of Christ. I had just been, not long before that, to a theater and had seen a play by Antoine Chekhov, the great Russian playwright. I was interested in Chekhov because he had a tremendous way of showing us how really big the simple things in us are. He could describe the glimmer of moonlight on a broken piece of glass or glittering off of a stream in a way that caused you not to forget it. And he could also do the same with characters. And in one of his plays that I was reading a part of, he described a Russian Orthodox priest who during this season in which we put the purple cloth on the communion table in the pulpit Bible cloth, to denote the 40 days through which our Lord began his passion for us, and we began our thinking seriously about his facing the cross. He told of how in one such season of the year, a priest was making his way through a snowstorm in the wastes of Russia. He came to a cottage, and he sought in that cottage refuge from the blast of the wind and the biting cold and he pounded upon the door and a gray-haired lady came and opened the door and looked at this priest and was awed and frightened by this man of God in his cassock and cowl with his big cross dangling about his neck and his long beard and his strange hat he came in he saw that she was a widow and that with her was her daughter, who was also a widow. And they were frightened and timid. 
and they didn't know how to speak to him. He knew what the Lenten lessons were like and that they were studying in the Gospels the account of the denial of Peter. And so he walked over to the fire and began to warm himself by the fire. And to put them at their ease, he began to tell them how Peter had once warmed himself by a fire and how he had denied his Lord and how his Lord had turned and looked straight at him and had heard every dirty word that he had said and how Peter had burst into tears and had gone out into the darkness weeping. And the priest said that as he related the story, he looked up from the fire and saw the two women with great teardrops falling from their faces. And he thought of the matchless spell of the gospel, that like a long golden chain, with one end of it in a cottage in the waste of Russia in a howling snowstorm, spanning over 2,000 years, all the way back to Caiaphas's courtyard. And he said it began to dawn on him that what we deal with in the gospel is God. What we deal with in Jesus Christ is God. And it doesn't make any difference, you see, whether we're traveling past the speed of sound in an airplane, or whether we're going to the moon, or whatever our technological advances may be, our need for reconciliation and forgiveness and for the washing away of our sins and the healing of our souls is still there. And the gospel is timeless. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this piece of the rock speaks to me every time I read it. And I'm so glad for him. He always brings to me hope. If you took out the words of Peter from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you wouldn't have any New Testament hardly left. Did you ever stop to think how many times he speaks? Let me read a few times to you. None of the other disciples speak as much as Peter. There are four records of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of them list the twelve apostles, and in all four of them, Peter is always listed first, and Judas is always listed last. And the others are usually changed around some, but not those two. If you look at his words, you will find on the first occasion when he met Jesus, you remember that miraculous draft of fishes that came, and he felt his own sinfulness, and that's a good sign when a man feels his own sinfulness. And he said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. And then you will remember another time, when a rich young ruler would not forsake what he had and follow Jesus. And Peter, speaking to Jesus, said, Lord, we have left all and followed thee. What therefore shall we have? And then you remember when he made that great confession at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said, Who do the sons of men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He spoke like an angel. And then when Jesus began to say that he would have to go to the cross and die, 
Only Peter would dare to rebuke his Lord. He says, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall never be to thee. Do you see how impetuous and impulsive he is? He sees a specter coming to the disciples on a storm-tossed sea. And Jesus said in his eye, be not afraid. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you on the water. And Jesus said, all right, come on, Peter. And he started. But immediately he heard the sound of the wind and he looked at the waves and then he screams, Lord, save me. There's another time when a poor woman with an issue of blood, a hemorrhage that will not be staunched, sneaks through a crowd and reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' garment and is healed. And Jesus turns and asks the question, Who touched me? Only Peter would say, The crowd pressed thee, and how sayest thou? Who touched me? There is another time that's very funny at this time of the year. They come to Jesus one day and they say, Does your master pay taxes? And, G and Peter says, of course he pays taxes. And then he goes to Jesus and he says, Master, do we pay taxes? <laughs> you know anybody that acts that way? Then there's another time when everyone forsakes him. And it must have been one of the most touching and pathetic moments in Jesus' whole experience. And he turns to his disciples after having spoken the hard words that caused these people to go away. And he looks at them and he says... Will you also go away? And bless his sweetheart, Peter comes through like an angel. To whom shall we go, Lord? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, in that great ecstatic moment when Jesus discusses with Moses and Elijah his decease at Jerusalem, No one else can talk because of the sacredness of the moment, but you can always depend on Peter to be able to talk. He says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then Peter, in a magnanimous moment, says to Jesus one day, How often shall I forgive my brother if he sin against me? Till seven times. Jesus said no to 70 times 7. And then in that upper room, when Jesus' heart is so full of anxiety because he knows everything that's going to take place within the hours that are slipping by, and he knows that Judas, to whom he has offered every avenue of grace, has hardened his heart against him, and Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And each one says, Lord, is it I? And Peter speaks up and boasts and says, Lord, though all men deny thee, yet not I. Do you remember when Jesus was washing their feet to try to put down that quarrel that we read about a moment ago as to who would be the greatest among you? There is an insane the philosophy that's going around now, the philosophy of narcissism, which means to please yourself. There's a good new book that I have on the narcissistic culture. Self-assertiveness. You're perfect right. Go on. 
This is contrary to what Jesus is teaching here. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And he washes his disciples' feet to put down the quarrel that exists among them. And he gets to Peter. And Peter pulls his foot back and he says, Lord, nah, you'll never wash my feet. Always watch your word, use of the word never. Jesus said, Peter, unless I wash your feet, you can have no part with me. And then Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He becomes a Baptist. And then uh, you see him, Lord, there in that, uh, in that place where he denies him, I know not the man. Then you see him at the sea of Galilee after the resurrection of Jesus when Jesus comes to him and says, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? And he says, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And to crown all of his impertinent and indecent speeches, after the resurrection of Jesus, when the gospel is open to the Gentiles, his old racial prejudice flares up again, and he doesn't want to go to Cornelius, who has had a vision from God after fasting and praying. And Peter is told to go there. You remember there is that vision of the thing let down from heaven and the animals clean and unclean there and the unclean animals and Peter is told to rise and kill and eat. And only Peter would say to the Lord, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And the Lord says to him, what I call clean. Don't you call common or unclean. And then in that wonderful love which he speaks about in one of his letters that covers a multitude of sins he says to the council later in Jerusalem for as much then as God gave them the life gift as he did unto us what was I that I could withstand God and so you see Peter now then how can we enter back into his experience and see something of what happened to him first of all Let's think for a moment about what happened to him on the incident in which he was in the upper room. When Jesus had predicted his denial and Peter had boasted that he wouldn't, Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. And so he said to him and to all of the rest of them, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. It's interesting how Satan sifts. He sifts us to sift out the good things and to keep that which is trashy and cheap and no good. The Lord sifts us in order to sift out the trash and to keep the good things. Satan not only tricks us and lies to us and deceives us into sin, but once he gets us into sin, he seeks to deceive us into thinking there's no way we can ever be forgiven or get out of it. I experience this again and again and again in speaking and visiting and counseling and trying to assist and to help people. They want to give up on the grace of God and nothing is better than to go back and study a piece of the rock. Go back and look at him and learn how God can heal life's mistakes. Well, Peter had said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death and he meant it. And so when he was out there 
in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. He couldn't pray long, he had fallen asleep, but so did James and John. And then they heard the crowd coming to arrest him. There was a band of Roman soldiers and some uh, representatives of the high priest were there. And Peter jumps up and he's going to keep his boast. He grabs his sword to defend his Lord. He grabs his sword to defend his Lord. It's interesting. John tells us that when Jesus spoke, there must have been such a majesty about Jesus that when they came and reached out to, to catch hold of him, Jesus said, did you come for me? And when he did, they fell backwards, struck by the regal dignity of Jesus. And then one of those people laid hold on Jesus. And when he did, Peter, impulsive like a little boy, grabbed his sword and slashed away at him. And he meant to slit him right through the head. He missed and hit his ear and cut it off. And then Jesus rebukes him. Put that thing up, Peter. Put your sword back in its scabbard. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He's going to be asked to defend his Lord later with his tongue. And he denies him, but here he's going to defend him with the sword. We talked about hypocrisy last week in the Pharisees and in the scribes. They made a display of their righteousness. They did the right things for the wrong reasons. And here Peter does the, the wrong thing for the right reason. He wanted to defend his Lord. He just did it the wrong way. You've done that and I have too. And that's interesting. Because, you know, Jesus... This is the last miracle he ever did. The last miracle he did was to heal Malchus's ear. I think he's still doing these miracles of healing the mistakes that we make when we whack away at someone else thinking that we're doing good and we do harm. Ruth Graham has a little poem that's in your bulletin. And she talks about this in her poem. Look at it. I knew a Malchus once, severely wounded by a Peter's sword, crazed by anger, dazed by pain. He thrust aside with awful pride that gentle hand whose touch alone could make him whole again. Have Jesus touched me? Hell, he hissed. Twas his disciple swung the sword aiming at my neck and missed. I want no part of Peter's Lord. Strong Savior Christ so oft repelled, for rash disciples blamed, poor wounded fools by pride compelled to go on living maimed. Do you see what happens here? You have two mistakes made. One is made by Peter when he whacks away at Malchus, and another made by one in not wanting to be healed not willing to be healed by Christ. But we need that healing, and we need to let Jesus heal us there. So there is grace that is extended not only to Malchus in the healing that takes place to him, but also to Peter in the healing that takes place in his own life too. 
and a grace that extends further, that extends to you and to me when we stop and we think about these things which we have done too. Well, stung by this rebuke, they bound Jesus. Peter goes into the bushes and the rest of them forsake Jesus and flee. And as the lanterns go off into the darkness, Peter trails along behind. He still wants to be close to where Jesus is, and he follows him all the way to Caiaphas' courtyard. It seems apparent that the apostle John must have known the high priest because somehow he gains entrance there, and then Peter gains entrance too. And he warms himself by the fire. And here is where the denial takes place. We have to be careful at whose fire we warm our hands. A little servant girl comes by and notice the way in which he begins his denial. She says to him, why you're one of them, you were with that Nazarene. And the translation does not do justice to it, which we read this morning. The original has it more like this, huh? What did you say? He tries to ignore the question. Be very straightforward in your testimony for Jesus. Don't muffle it. I know a man who got into a lot of trouble with alcohol because he didn't have enough courage to say, no, I don't want it. Because of his convictions, he would say something like, well, I'm afraid it'll make me sick. Don't do that. Stand by your convictions. Doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs, but don't believe your doubts and doubt your beliefs. Here, Peter says, I don't know what you're saying. I can't understand you. And then a little later on, someone else sees him and asks him the question again. And Peter says it more strongly this time, I do not know the man. And then still later, if you put the composite accounts together, while Jesus is inside Caiaphas' office, and the soldiers have blindfolded him and spat upon him and struck him in the face with their hands and then took their blindfold off and lead him out, just when they lead him out of the upstairs, down in the courtyard is Peter using the filthy language that he hadn't used since he was hauling in the nets, swearing down curses upon himself, using God's name, that he doesn't know the man. And just at that point, the door opens, and he looks, and Jesus looks. And that must have been, to me, the greatest look in all of human history. Peter knew that Jesus had heard every dirty word he said, and he burst into tears. There was a stunned silence. The people that were around the fire were shocked at the vehemence of his language and his denial, so they were all quiet. And the door opened, 
And Jesus looked down at Peter, and Peter looked at him, and a rooster crowed. And Peter recalled everything, and he burst into tears and ran out into the darkness, weeping bitterly. Now there is life for a look at the Savior. Peter not only remembered what Jesus had told him, but he remembered that Jesus had said, I have prayed for you, that your faith would not fail you, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. I think that John the Apostle must have gone down the road running after Peter in the darkness. And I think Peter would have been another Judas, that he would have tied a rope around his neck and thrown it over a tree and hung himself and said, Big mouth liar that I am. How could he ever use me? I'm no good to him anymore. John would say, Peter, you know he's not like that. He'll forgive you. He'll forgive you. You remember all those things he's done. And somehow, Peter remembered. And there, when you see Peter again at the Sea of Tiberias, Jesus gives him the opportunity on resurrection morning to be the first of the disciples to see him. And then at the Sea of Tiberias to reaffirm the love which he had denied by three times saying to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then when he preached Judas's funeral sermon in Solomon's porch, I'm sure we don't have it all. I'm sure he could have said, I would have been like Judas had I not remembered what Jesus said and took it to my own heart too. And known that he could forgive me and some Roman soldier who came running up said, Peter, I was the one who took the spear and pushed it into his side. And the blood in the water came out. Peter said, I know. He forgave me and he'll forgive you too. And one of the high priest's servants came up and said, Peter, I took the horrible thorns and pushed them down on his head. Could he ever forgive me for what he did? I spat in his face. Peter said, I cursed him. I lied about him. He forgave me. He'll forgive you too. Peter said, I'm proof that he'll forgive you. No wonder there were 3,000 people converted that day. Wherever was such grace of God preached, wherever had such preacher been through so much that he had something to say and they listened, no wonder We call our children Peter till this day. We're thankful for that rock upon which the church is built, that rock-like faith that we can have, that faith which means forgiveness of sins, that faith which caused him later to be so that people would bring their sick and put them so that his shadow would fall on them and they were healed. The transformation 
I wanted to say all of these things because there are always people who think God cannot forgive them and that they've gone too far. Peter tells us that God is here, that Christ is present, that his love is great, and that he will take us and make us what we ought to be. Let us bow in prayer. May I say in closing that there is an invitation which is given. You don't have to sign a card or raise your hand or walk an aisle. Those are all good things. But I really think the most important aisle you'll ever walk is the one you walk down when you go out of the church. And if today you felt the presence of the Holy Spirit speaking to you, then accept the forgiveness which is extended to you in Jesus Christ and know how much he loves you. And if he loves you that much, he's going to keep you in all the days that lie ahead. But if you fall, he's going to pick you up again, just like he did Peter. And now, God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace which you have shown us in the life of your blessed servant, Peter. We want to be a piece of the rock, too. We pray that you will help us to so take the love of Jesus into us that we may live for him and that when we have failed him know that he loves us enough to forgive us and to heal our mistakes and sins and to set us on the right path again and help us to know that we can follow him all the way to the end of life and now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.